came. They were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Sind diese Rendenden Männer nicht alle Galiläer? Kono hanashi o shiteru hito tachi wa mina garidaya hito de wa naide shoka? Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Alors, comment se fait-il que chacun de nous les entend dans sa propre langue? Entonces, como es que cada uno de nosotros los escucha en su propio idioma? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Parphelia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and convicts, to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. Los escuchamos declarar las maravillas de Dios en nuestra lengua. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another. Was bedudet das? What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, Ils ont bu trop de vin. Ellos han tenido mucho vino. They have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So this past Wednesday, we had planned for an end-of-year cookout for our last evening of faith formation for the school year. 
If you remember the forecast from last Wednesday, you'll know I spent some time scrambling coming up with a new plan because it rained that afternoon into the early evening. The rain let up in time for our event, but the ground and grass were wet. So we had ham sliders instead of hamburgers and hot dogs. And I grabbed some more supplies so we could still have a part of our meal that had a cookout vibe. I knew the fire pit and the wood that's been piled in there waiting to be burned would be wet. But I was pretty sure we had the supplies for tabletop s'mores, a steno burner and foot-long wooded skewers waiting for me in the kitchen. I was not wrong about having either of those supplies, but when it actually came time for s'mores and I had a group of eager children and youth ready for all that gooey sugar, I discovered the lid to the sterno had rusted somehow. And after just about every one of us gave it a try, it was clear that it was not budging. As I started frantically trying to think up a plan C, thankfully our penultimate scout mom, Laura Rowland, was there to help me. She had me fish an aluminum disposable serving pan out of the trash while she grabbed a few broken crayons and a coffee filter for a fire starter and instructed me to go have the kids find small wooden sticks. With lighter in hand, I went out and invited all the kids to help us build our fire in our unconventional fire pit. Laura's daughter, Emily, is also a scout who's currently working on her Eagle Scout project, a little lending library that will be installed here on our property and stocked with books she collects through a drive that will also be part of her project. Emily, good scout that she is, took charge of our fire project, carefully constructing a tiny teepee of sticks over the fire starter before lighting it. Our kids were ready to pile sticks on the fire quickly, but Emily held them off, noting that when the fire first started, the tiniest shift could cause the fire to go out. As the flames grew in strength, slowly and carefully, more sticks were added to the fire increasing slowly in size until it was big enough, established enough for marshmallow roasting. In the end, a few marshmallows were lost to the flames, and I think even a couple of dead roly-polies were cremated as well. May they rest in peace. But our makeshift fire pit did the trick. All that gooey, crystallized, chocolatey goodness was had by all. Anyone who has ever been in charge of starting a fire knows that it is a bit of an art, obviously also experienced today, and understands the truth that Emily pointed out. But when they first begin, fires must be tended with care if they are truly going to take hold and have lasting power. In the winter, we use our wood-burning fireplace to provide a decent amount of heat at our house. We've got four acres of woodlot on our property, so it's an energy source that costs us nothing more than the labor of cutting and hauling wood each year. I know both the care it takes to get a fire to catch hold, but also how important it is to keep feeding that fire once you have it established. The Spirit of God, which Jesus promised to the disciples as he prepared to leave them after his resurrection, arrives on the rush of a mighty wind on that first Pentecost day and appears visibly to the men and women who have been waiting for it as tongues of fire that separate and rest upon each of the disciples' heads. 
The Spirit inspires them to move from their hiding place in an upper room in Jerusalem out into the streets where they begin speaking the gospel boldly. As we experience today, they spoke in different languages so that all of the diverse community of the city would be able to hear and understand the good news they were being sent to tell. The crowd's attention is caught as they stand confused and in awe as they realize that each of them is hearing the message in their native tongue. It is so fitting that the church begins like this. The fire of the Spirit alighting upon its first members and empowering them in the act of translation. For translation has been at the heart of Christianity since the moment Jesus entered our world. Jesus himself is an act of translation. As he came to embody our God in our most native and universal tongue, in our flesh and blood. Jesus translates the divine into human form and allows us to see both who our God is and also who we are meant to be all at once. Yet the work of translation was only just beginning. For translation is why the Christian movement has spread so readily around the world. And it is why it is not limited to a particular nation or people. Christianity has proven to be highly translatable. It moves from one people to another, one culture to another with ease. Meeting people where they are, blending their culture with the heart of the gospel, so that they too can hear the gospel message clearly in their native tongue and culture and forge a relationship with Jesus, create a life-giving community as a result. I was a sociology major in college and was fascinated by the study of Christianity in my sociology of religion class. Time and again, whether the example came from the Caribbean islands and their native voodoo or the pagan traditions of northern Europe, there is this powerful evidence of how Christianity came alongside a people's native culture, embracing it in order to share the good news of God's love made known to us in Jesus once more. Unfortunately, our history is also filled with too many examples of Christianity being misused as a tool of power a means of conquest for empires and colonizers. We are at a point in our history where so much cultural change is happening at a rapid pace, and the work of translation is needed once more. As part of the church that was born out of the Reformation era, we believe that the church is reformed and always reforming. We believe that the work of the Spirit is always ongoing, that the work of translation will never be finished until the kingdom finally does come. We are not all that unlike those first disciples gathered together on that first Pentecost day. The Spirit is moving in our midst, and we are being called to tend to that fire. It's not something we create out of thin air. It is elemental, something that is given to us, entrusted to us. Our role is to tend it, 
to keep feeding the fire, to pay attention to it, be moved by it. There is so much in us that can stifle the spirit, smother its fire. I saw a quote online this week that referenced the famous John 3:16 and 17 that reminds us that God sent his son into the world not to condemn it, but to save it. The quote said, if God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn it, I doubt he sent you. Our judgment and condemnation threaten to smother the Spirit's movement as it seeks to meet people where they are in the world today, speak to them in their native tongue, and create community where the love of God is made real. Our fear threatens the Spirit's fire as well, as the uncertainty that surrounds us makes us more likely to turn inward. We resist change and so struggle to trust God's call, struggle to be ready to move toward a future we cannot yet see. We can get so caught up in ourselves, our own lives, our own need to make our way in the world that we can abandon the fire, forget it's there, forget to feed it, or let it dwindle to nothing but a pile of ash. We can let our pessimism morph into a hopeless apathy, turning our backs on what is possible through the Spirit's power, struggling to trust that reformation, redemption, resurrection is possible for the church and for our world. God is calling us to a different way. God is calling us to tend the fire. When I think of that aluminum pan, those broken crayons, coffee filter, and tiny sticks gathered one by one. By the way, that microcosm of our community took what began as a solitary flame and cared for it, gathering around it and tending to it until it became a fire that brought warmth and joy to all. I imagine the larger fire of the spirit over which we are being called to watch. The ways we are each be invi being invited to gather up sticks, to gather round the fire. To nurture its flame with love. Love that meets our world where it is, looking upon each that crosses our path with compassion, with a desire to truly know them, to learn their native tongue. To nurture its flame with hope. Hope in the power of the gospel, the power of God's love to change, to transform each of us, all of us. To nurture its flame with courage. Courage to face the unknown, to embrace change, to follow Jesus into a future we cannot yet quite see. To nurture its flame with faith. Our trust that through the power of the Spirit, Goodness and love can win. Our Lord of life can reign. Anyone who has ever tended a fire knows how important air is to a fire's flame. Fires need space, room to breathe, wind, oxygen for them to take hold. The same is true for the spirit in each of our lives, in our collective life. The Spirit needs space, oxygen, 
wind, room to breathe. In the midst of a society that thrives on our hurry and feeds on our fear, we need to make room for the Spirit. We need to create space so that we can breathe deep, stay attuned to God's presence, discern God's movement, have time to gather those sticks of love, hope, courage, and faith so that we might add them to the fire, kindling the true love of God made known to us in Jesus Christ that has always been and will forever be such good news for our world. Amen.